This is Science Moab, a show exploring the science happening in Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm Peggy Hodgkins, and today we are talking about sandbars in the Grand Canyon with fluvial geomorphologist and river guide, Katie Chapman. My name's Katie Chapman. I grew up outside Seattle and got, got my bachelor's in geology at Whitman College and came to Flagstaff and Northern Arizona University to get my master's in geology. And that was primarily working on sandbars in Grand Canyon and effectively got sucked into Grand Canyon as it has a habit of doing. And knew that I wanted to continue working with the group that I'd met when I was doing my master's and now work full-time with this group as of September, which is really exciting. That's great. And yeah, it all, it all worked out amazingly <laughs> enough. What has happened to sandbars in the Grand Canyon as a result of the Glen Canyon Dam? They did not fare well when the dam was initially put in. The dam greatly upset the balance of how much water was flowing through Grand Canyon and when that water is flowing. That imbalance with how much sand was in the canyon. Our whole upper basin supply of sand was essentially cut off when the dam went in. And basically the transport abilities of the river were increased. And so with those two things working together, a lot of sand was flushed out of Grand Canyon and the sandbars, sandbar overall size and volume was greatly diminished. Yeah, they, they suffered. And it wasn't until the floods in 1983 are kind of what sparked the idea for the current restoration scheme, because any sand that had built up in the canyon from tributaries or that was left in the channel um, were distributed into these beautiful big sandbars. And it yeah, sparked the idea of, hey, maybe we can replicate one feature of the pre-dam river, which were these seasonal floods, maybe we can replicate those to use the sand that is left in the system to try to restore the sandbars. Aside from the pure joy of a nice sand beach <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> on a river trip, why should we care so much about sand or sediment deposits in the Grand Canyon? There's a whole bunch of reasons why they're important. They function as the primary camping areas for all river trips that go down there. They're a durable, non-fragile surface that campers can frolic around on and not damage any of the more fragile pieces of the ecosystem around the river. They form critical habitat for a bunch of aquatic species. The backwaters that are kind of in the the return channels of the sandbars are critical to a bunch of the native fish. They need that calm, sometimes warmer water. The sand also serves as a really important resource for preserving fragile archaeological sites in the canyon. Some of them are along the channel margins in places that are vulnerable to goli erosion during, especially during monsoon season, any time where there's heavy rainfall, where these goalies essentially erode away the areas surrounding these fragile archaeological sites. And say you have a sandbar adjacent to or across the river from these arc sites, wind will blow sand from the sandbars onto those like further upslope areas 
and build up a sand dune around and over these fragile archaeological sites and essentially protect them from erosion or from people walking on them, from animals walking on them, keeping them protected from the elements. Mainly talking about sandbars in the first 100, say 100K reach below the dam, which is Marble Canyon, <laughs> but are sandbars throughout, even below the little Colorado River input, um, are there still being affected by the dam below that, the sandbars? Oh, yeah. Yeah. In general, the, the sand inputs from the Puria River and Little Colorado, I mean, they're not, they're not small. There's still a lot of sand coming in from those tributaries, and that sand is now helping to restore the sandbars. But they're still really minor in comparison to what used to come through the Glen Canyon reach um, from the whole upper basin. So the entire entirety of Grand Canyon is still in the sediment deficit. Yeah. Okay. Just making sure. Yeah. You're studying mainly Marble Canyon because it's so it's way more dramatic right below the dam, I'm guessing. Yeah. It yeah, it is operating on less of a sand input than below the little Colorado, but it was also because a two member mixing model was a lot less complicated than a three-member mixing model that you would have to do with a little Colorado. So in your research, you were trying to determine the percentage of sediment from, like you're saying, like two distinct sources. One, the pre-dam Colorado River deposits that are Mm -hmm. now blocked behind the dam, and the inputs from the Perea River, which is just downstream of the dam um, and does contribute naturally um, to the sediment load. Why was it important to distinguish between these two sources? And what were you trying to show by distinguishing the two components? So I was trying to, we were trying to evaluate how well we're actually retaining sand from the Perea River in Marble Canyon. How well we're using what's kind of our only source of new incoming sand from Marble Canyon, how well we're using that sand to rebuild the sandbars in Marble Canyon. As in the pre-dam days, you would have had sand from the Pre River and the whole upper basin contributing to the sand that was available to build these sandbars. So in theory, the composition of the sandbars in the pre-dam days was about the same as the composition of the total sand supplied to the area. So now with the Priya River being the primary source of sand for Marble Canyon, and that being the only reliable source of incoming sand, we wanted to see how well we're actually using that sand specifically to rebuild sandbars. And so by measuring the composition of those HFE deposits, deposits created by the high flow experiments, that was how we were able to put a solid metric of how well we're actually retaining Perea sand and not just utilizing relic pre-dam sand that might be stored in the channels or sand that we hadn't previously been able to measure to build the sandbars instead. High flow experiments or HFEs follow the science-based protocol for high flow experimental releases from Glen Canyon Dam approved in the 2016 long-term experimental and management plan record of decision for Glen Canyon Dam operations 
and it is a component of the department's compliance with the Grand Canyon Protection Act of 1992. The goal of the high flow experiment is to move sand stored in the river channel and redeposit it to rebuild eroded sandbars and beaches downstream of the Perea River in Grand Canyon National Park. You're trying to see, is that sand being mixed in and maintained, or is it just kind of depositing on top, and then the next storm, it just flows downriver? Correct, yeah. Uh, we're trying to see how well we're incorporating it into the active sand in Marble Canyon. So, and how, how did you find those results? I mean, how well is it mixing in and being retained? Pretty darn well. In general, the sandbars in Marble Canyon averaged across three different grain size fractions and 19 different deposits that we sampled. In general, the sandbars are about 76% Korea sand, wow. um, which is great news considering that the pre-dam supply ratio of Perea to upper basin sand was only 6% Perea sand. Very interesting. You understand a bit about how Perea sand is mixing in with the existing sand, which is pre-dam Colorado River deposits. How is that important? I mean, how are you using that to help model restoration efforts and flows? You could think of it as uh, this is a way of evaluating how well the HFVs are restoring sandbars. Are we actually retaining the sand we're trying to build up in the system as opposed to just reusing sand that was already there? So the whole idea with HFEs was to try to first stop the evacuation of sand from Marble and Grand Canyon. And then if we could try to replenish that supply of sand. And so this was a way of seeing if we were actually replenishing it. So can you describe sort of how you came up with these unique sediment fingerprints in order to distinguish between the contributions of the pre-dam sediments and the Perea sand contributions? Yeah, so sediment fingerprinting is it's this technique where you find physical or, I mean, in this case, I used physical characteristics of the sand from two source sand populations. So in this case, the Perea River, which is our primary source of sand for Marble Canyon, brings in over 90% of the sand that comes into Marble Canyon in the post-dam days. So that was one end member. And then the other end member was, ideally, I wanted to represent the entire upper basin of the Colorado River, which is a massive area, and there's no way that I could go in and basically travel the whole watershed and take samples of sand throughout the whole thing and have it be an accurate representation of what used to come through Glen Canyon. There's a whole bunch of pre-dam flood deposits in Glen Canyon, below Glen Canyon Dam, but above the Perea River confluence. There's about a 16-mile stretch of river there. So we found flood deposits up there that we used as a proxy for upper basin sand. So I sampled those and sieved them down into initially six different grain size fractions and measured their bulk elemental composition with an XRF. And XRFs themselves are really cool devices where essentially on an atomic level, 
shoot the sand um, with these really high energy x-rays and it targets the individual atoms of the little mineral crystals within the sand and excites electrons within those atoms and as those electrons fall back down to their original unexcited state they emit a little x-ray and the wavelength of that x-ray is specific to whatever element that atom is. Oh. And so you can, yes, yeah, so you can look at the proportion of how much each of those emitted x-rays of the different frequencies are emitted once things are unexcited. And that gives you, that's how you measure the bulk elemental composition of these sand samples. Neat. The basement rocks that are all exposed in like the Uintas, the Wasatch Mountains, part of the Rockies, like, yeah. And they also have a bunch of, uh, there's some volcanic rocks up there too. So all those rocks have minerals in them that aren't found in the rocks of the Puria watershed. And the composition of that bedrock is reflected in the composition of the sand delivered by each watershed. And so that's where the fingerprint essentially came from that distinguishes the two source sand populations. But basically looked at the composite or the concentration of seven different elements in those two watersheds and how much was in the Marble Canyon mixed samples. And that's where I got the total Perea contribution to those HFE deposits. So when you go out and you're sampling a sandbar, I mean, how deep do you try to dig to get a, an accurate sample? It depended on the deposit. The general structure of these deposits had a pretty consistent pattern to it, where there was a more clay-rich layer at the base of these deposits. In the flood deposits, that's followed by increasingly coarser and coarser sand. They have a main body of these, the most beautiful climbing ripples you've ever seen, and then normal ripples, and then uh, planar beds. The sandbars have a, a, a pretty consistent pattern of sedimentary structures within the deposits that made it pretty clear what each individual deposit was at all the different sites that I was digging at. Sometimes these deposits were, you know, 10 to 30 centimeters deep. One of them that I never got to the bottom of must have been over three meters deep. The deposits themselves dictated how deep of a trench it would be try to encompass all the sand throughout the vertical stretch of the deposit. If you design these floods that you don't really have to design anything, you're basically just flooding it to a certain level that's like a natural flood and then, and then measuring the deposits. Yeah. I mean, things have been scaled down. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why our HFEs are not as large as, say, the annual spring snowmelt flood. And it wouldn't be ideal to have a flood as big as, you know, say, the 80,000 CFS annual flood anyway. That, that volume of water going through there would, it's too much for the amount of sand that we have. It would flush it all out. And so along with... Um you know, some of your coworkers, I imagine like, that there are several types of like designer flows being designed for either for bugs, insects, for fish, different natural processes that have been affected by the dam. I mean, so are these, these designer flows, are they collectively coordinated, arranged? I mean, you guys work together on when and how to do these flows? Yeah. 
so the first the first of these floods was in 1996 following some experimental flows just kind of testing out the idea of using dam releases to help restore pieces of the ecosystem between between the sandbar folks the fish the bugs everybody wants something a little different we all want to recreate different aspects of the pre-dam annual floods and how the river how the river was before but there is a the LTEMP, the long-term experimental monitoring plan basically set out a it's essentially a set of rules of the conditions that could trigger an HFE and when those HFEs would be, how much sand was necessary to trigger it, how much water would be released for how long. And a lot of that is based off of a flow routing model, basically describes what an ideal peak discharge would be for whatever given amount of sand has been delivered. And then if that sand is delivered within a certain window, I think it's July 1st to October, October something. Um, Basically, sand delivered during monsoon season, if you get a sufficient amount of that sand, then you can have an HFE in November. If you don't get enough sand, no HFE. And then likewise, if you get enough sand during say there's some big winter floods on the Puria River, then you could have a spring HFE. And so ideally, the way that I thought it was supposed to work up until this last year was that if you get enough sand, you get a flood. The HFEs don't change the overall volume of water released per year. And so it was supposed to be impervious to other water conditions, but given the drought conditions in the Colorado River Basin right now. That was part of what contributed to not having an HFE this year, even though we did have enough sand. It was actually my next question. Kind of a politically loaded question, but I mean, so Uh you have seen some effect on these experimental flows for the purpose of maintaining Lake Powell levels. Uh Yeah. Okay. Interesting. About just last year, it was the first Yes. So this last fall was the first monsoon season since 2018, where the Puria River delivered a sufficient amount of sand to to be able to have a flood. But given, I don't I don't know all the details of the decision. Um, I know that a bunch of the scientists were advocating for a flood because we all want it for restoration purposes. And the sandbars got pretty destroyed during a bunch of really intense monsoon storms this year. So both for overall sand restoration reason, as well as just restoring campsites that are in a critical reach of the canyon that got pretty well destroyed. Yeah, we wanted an HFE, but it didn't happen. Yeah. Well, Katie, I appreciate you talking to Science Mo about all the interesting science you're doing in the Grand Canyon. Yeah, thanks for having me. To learn more or listen to other Science Moab episodes, visit sciencemoab.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Science Moab is done in partnership with Utah State University Extension. Newsletter by Luke Williams. Our theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding. And the show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins, Christina Young, and KZMU. If you love Science Moab, let us know. Leave a rating on Spotify or a review on iTunes. And consider supporting Science Moab by donating to the podcast at sciencemoab.org. 
This programming is unique to Moab, Utah, and your support makes it possible. Right, by...